Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 cases among those under 20 going through the roof. Are they going to be a part of the second wave? The Hamilton District School Board is looking whether to remove their police in the school program. We talked to some in Toronto who have already done that. The mayors of Haldeman and Norfolk are upset that they are not included in stage two. So they decided to stage their own protest and get a haircut. What kind of message does that send to the people? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, we mentioned this uh, earlier on in the week. 43% of the new cases in Hamilton in the last 10 days are those under 20. 43% of the new cases in the last 10 days under 20. Uh, and it's obviously rising amongst young people. We're hearing this from other parts, regions as well. Uh, and the who has changed its tune on asymptomatic spread in the community, or have they? We'll talk to Do- uh, Dr. Todd Coleman uh, now, PhD Assistant Professor of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So first of all, uh, Doctor, your thoughts in regard to the young people and the spike we're certainly seeing in Hamilton, 43% in the last 10 days, under 20. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, uh, it does speak to a few possibilities that uh, we are seeing relaxed uh, social distancing uh, among this group uh, based uh, for on various reasons, maybe uh, because they think they're not at high risk uh, or simply just because it's been, uh, we're at 13, 14 weeks now and maybe they think I haven't gotten it yet, so maybe I will not get it and I can relax a little bit. Uh, your thoughts on their impression that it's not going to affect them. When they get it, uh, we hear it's not as severe, but it can be, can it not? Yes. Uh, it definitely can be severe. We've seen manifestations of uh, uh, different manifestations of what COVID-19 looks like uh, over the past few months. And it can it can be uh, while it's not as heavily uh, affecting people in their 20s, uh, it still can have some really severe detrimental side effects. And we still don't know what the long term effects of being infected with this virus are. So I guess at this point, good idea, we kept the schools closed. Absolutely. Yes, definitely a good idea. Uh, We probably would have seen a lot more transmission uh, with anyone with children or anyone who is in close contact with children and teenagers knows that uh, uh, viruses especially get transmitted quite easily through the school systems. And how concerned are you as we start to see daycares open up? I think I am very concerned uh, because there doesn't seem to be uh, a very clear uh, message, especially from uh, the government, uh, about what this is going to look like exactly. So in terms of what protective measures are in place in daycares, that communication seems to be lacking uh, uh, on the part of what's been said so far. Uh, World Health Organization talked about asymptomatic spread uh, the other day, then walked back the statement. Where are they now? What can we learn from this? 
That's very interesting. Uh, it seems like it was a yo-yo effect. So they were talking about asymptomatic cases, that there were uh, a fair number of asymptomatic cases, and then one of their representatives indicated that asymptomatic cases are rare and then indicated that they misspoke and were back to there are asymptomatic cases. And it seems to be from some of the, the scientific consensus that asymptomatic cases could be anywhere between 25% uh, to 40% of cases. Uh, confident with the information coming out of the World Health Organization, this appears to be another misstep on their part where we're getting mixed messaging. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I'm not very, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, impressed with the consistency and the communication that seems to be happening on on their uh, regard, especially with something like this, because we know that uh, cases are spread uh, through asymptomatic uh, uh, transmission, and this really creates another uh, reason to go back to the the young people getting infected, for people to think that it's okay to, to relax their social distancing measures, that it's not really as severe, it you need to have a symptom to be able to pass this on. Uh, interesting poll, uh, and you know you can put into into this what what you will. But Americans are more worried about the second wave than what Canadians are, which seems kind of ironic considering the Americans didn't appear to be taking this too seriously initially. Are you mm-hmm. concerned that we are not concerned uh, or less concerned about a second wave? I am concerned uh, that people aren't taking this as seriously. The the social distancing guidelines are still in place um, and there's still recommendations to take every precaution that you can uh, to prevent this. Uh, And we don't want to relax this too much because we've seen what happens when there's inconsistencies in control measures. Uh, Just look to our neighbours to the south to see what happens when there's really uncontrolled spread of the virus. Uh, we, we still continue to see uh, the trending downwards in Ontario. I believe it was 252 new cases today, so we're, we seem to be out of that three to 400 range. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really positive sign to see the cases down uh, uh, that much. We are seeing a downward trend overall. Uh, we aren't out of the woods yet. Uh, 251 new cases still means 251 uh, chances of transmission uh, happening on a daily basis. Uh, so we don't want to get too comfortable in seeing the curve uh, uh, really go down uh, before we see really negligible numbers of cases. So just a handful, that means that contact tracing on, on behalf of public health can happen more easily and more efficiently with fewer numbers of cases circulating. Uh, we know that uh, this generally has approximately a two-week, uh, COVID-19 has about a two-week incubation period before it starts to show. So often people will, will benchmark things and then see what happened two weeks later. Uh, we're seeing a reopening uh, for, for the majority of the province, I guess not southern Ontario, into stage two at this point. Uh, as well, lots of demonstrations uh, in marches and such. Is, is the period two weeks from now going to be significant how significant is that yeah it, and it all depends on whether or not we're we're going to be testing properly and whether the the coordination on the testing capabilities is happening there i would expect uh we've seen uh some upticks in certain uh 
uh, uh, numbers of cases that sort of coincide with some periods of time. So, for example, we saw a little bit of an increase uh, uh, on the long, uh, a couple weeks after the long weekend uh, in May. Uh, so we do want to really, really carefully look at this because any uh, potential upswing uh, means that there's more people with the disease, meaning more chances for transmission. Do you think the message is getting to young people that now they are, or in some situations, uh, the majority of the new cases? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's actually getting to people. The messaging seems very, uh, uh, was very ingrained early on that it seemed as if this was a, an issue that affected uh, older people, older people with compromised immune systems uh, and so on. And I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, this might not have sunken in. Uh, but let's just hope that uh, this doesn't mean that we see a, a even higher uptick in, in young cases over the next few weeks. So obviously the message here is to keep following the guidelines, keep that two meters, and if not, wear a mask. That's exactly right. So keep your distance, wear a mask. The masks have been shown to be very, very effective if worn by the majority of people uh, in reducing transmission. So keep on with that and keep it consistent in terms of uh, uh, your practices. Don't uh, feel like because we're reopening, it means that we can relax some of the social distancing measures. We still have uh, uh, quite a long way to go before we see a a zero per day uh, transmission in this. And don't forget to wash your hands. Uh, Dr. Todd Coleman has been with us, Ph.D., Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, you too. Thank you very much again. All right. Ontario's Treasury uh, Treasury Board President has held the inaugural meeting of the Joint Minister's Roundtable of the Ontario Health Data Platform. Uh, They are leveraging the power of data to allow the province to better learn about COVID-19. And also, let's not forget the appointment of Jane Philpott. We'll chat about that as well. Let's bring in Peter Bethlen Falvey, President of the Treasury Board, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, and uh, thank you for having me, uh, Scott. So tell us about this roundtable and how you're using data to help track COVID-19 and, and get a handle on this. So so uh, we, uh, Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health, and myself announced uh, this project about uh, a number of weeks ago, about a month ago. And uh, its, uh, its purpose is to, and we've asked Dr. Jane Philpott, you mentioned her, to uh, help design and implement uh, the Ontario Health Data Platform. So we want to integrate data from across the province. And its goal really is to understand the virus and, you know, how it spreads and how we can be more effective at uh, combating it, the most effective way to combat it. And particularly, you know, we're in the first wave here, but uh, there could be future waves. So we want to be as prepared as possible. So, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the idea of, uh, of the platform. And what does Jane Philpott bring to all of this? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, Dr. Philpott is a real expert in the, the healthcare field, having worked uh, abroad, uh, having been a practicing physician, you know, real frontline experience. Uh, but she also brings a, a focus on research and understanding of digital platforms and data. So that's a big, big plus. And, and, um, I think the fact that she was a uh, also a president of the Treasury Board doesn't hurt. So 
she brings an understanding of, of government and, and uh, the public service that I think will be very helpful in ensuring that this uh, this Ontario Health Data Platform is, is effective, it, it gets designed in, in a constructive way, and we can implement it, you know, on a, um, on a, uh, on a real-time basis. When we're talking about data, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about medical records? Are we talking about tracking and tracing? What exactly does this mean? Well, we're talking about, first of all, it's anonymous data, so it's not uh, personalized data, but it will tell us, you know, where if, if someone's had COVID uh, in, let's say, in, um, I don't know, Hamilton, let's say, um, or any, any part of the province, uh, we'll be able to track that. Um, you know, but there'll be there'll be other elements of data. Um, we've we've said all all options are on the table, including collecting racialized data, uh, vulnerable population data, um, you know, income level data. But it'll all be anonymized, which means that it'll all be uh, uh, not individuals, but just just pieces of data. Um, and what what and, and and this data exists on multiple platforms in hospitals and different public health areas. Uh, different ministries, so we'll be able to take uh, the data from various sources, uh, and then say, okay, how can we use the data to be able to predict where the outbreaks are most likely to happen? Try to get ahead of the curve, um, so that we can put resources and equipment and, and tackle a problem. And that's the that's the beauty of uh, of being able to use data in a constructive way. And I got to say, in Ontario, we have not only a world class health system, but we have a world class research and technology capability. So really it's harnessing a bunch of things that uh, will allow us to bat uh, COVID as effectively as possible. Uh, many have commented that the systems uh, in government and, and healthcare, like anything, um, some have described it as archaic. And, and, you know, the premier has even showed frustration on this. How challenging is this to, to, to bring this up to, uh, to the technological standard of today? Um, nothing's without challenge, but but I think you're right, and I think the premier's right. You know, we've got to get into the digital age. We've got the we've got the capabilities in this province, and the fact that we're maybe behind the curve, I look at it and say, okay, let's uh, let's not look at why that is, but let's let's fix it. Let's move forward. And so this, I think, is a great opportunity. Um, it will allow us to, you know, under Dr. Philpott's leadership and with a, a really a great group of people. Uh, on her uh, roundtable um, and I, on advising her, who will then give um, Minister Elliott and myself the, uh, the platform. Um, we hope to have this launched by July. So we're, we're talking not months, we're talking days, you know, maybe 30, 45 days um, to actually launch this platform and allow researchers and others to start to mine the data. Normally, these sort of uh, these sort of ventures take a very long period of time. Um, is this like turning the Titanic? Is this uh, obviously it's not if we can do it in, in a certain amount of time. Uh, but normally, it, it does seem to take a lot of time to change and update these systems. Uh, how are you able to do it in such a short period? Well, I, you know, I spent most of my career in the business world, so only the last two years in politics. Uh, uh, you know, if you're very clear about the objectives and you marshal the resources and, and uh, put a time frame on it and get smart people around the table, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can do. And uh, much like the premier saying, okay, we got to do more testing, you know, we're up to 20,000 and we'll continue. Um, we're going to say, let's use data. Uh, we, have to, we have to be able to uh, 
do the contact tracing based on this data. We have to do the predictive capabilities to, to be able to she can move fast. Speed is so imperative here. Um, so I, I really believe, you know, we've been very clear in what we want to do. Uh, the Premier's given me the, uh, the broad man, mandate to, to drive us into the 21st century uh, with the digital platform. And this is a key part of it. Peter Bethlen Falvey has been with us, President of the Treasury Board, uh, talking about the Joint Minister's Roundtable on Ontario Health Data and the platform they're trying to create in order to not only update us, but uh, follow and uh, trace COVID-19. Peter, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, my, my pleasure, Scott, and uh, all the best uh, to your listeners. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board is now looking at whether uh, police presence in school should be at, uh, police should be in schools uh, in its jurisdiction. In 2017, parents, educators, and community organizers fought to address this issue at the uh, Toronto District School Board and uh, and succeeded in getting the program removed. To talk more about all of this, Gita Madden is with us, speaking on behalf of Education Not Incarceration, a group of educators, students, parents, parents, researchers, and community organizers based in Toronto that address the issue of school-to-prison pipeline, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. And Gita is with us now. Gita, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me today. Many will think that, uh, gee, police in schools is a great idea. Why is it not? Well, there are many reasons why having police officers in schools is not a good idea. For one, they um, criminalize students. I mean, a lot of the kinds of interactions and the violence and the brutality that we see characterizing interactions between police officers and um, particularly racialized people um, on the streets also become reproduced in school spaces. Um, We also see that police officers are um, more commonly placed in schools or more commonly spend more time in schools that have higher proportions of racialized students. Um, And it results in the criminalization of those students. And research also shows that um, schools that do have a higher presence of officers, um, uh, issues that disciplinary issues that might have otherwise been handled by administration um, tend to escalate into criminal justice issues. Um, so there's a huge racial justice issue here with having police officers present in schools. So in other words, a lot of the issues that we're seeing being talked about right now are also present in the schools. That's why they don't want them there. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. What we were seeing in Toronto was that um, Black students and Indigenous students in particular um, were reporting being more highly, uh, disproportionately targeted by the police officers that were present in their schools. And like I said before, officers were present in more schools that had higher proportions of Black and Indigenous students anyways. Um, So yes, that's exactly what's happening. The, The Similar dynamics that are that we're seeing um, in street policing are being reproduced in schools as well, and this has been documented throughout um, jurisdictions across North America. So not only like across the states, but then also more recently in Canadian cities as well. And the TDSB actually um, did a set, a review of the the program once we started um, being very vocal about it and trying to get it removed in Toronto, and they also found that. Um, the presence of the SRO officers in in Toronto schools made um, particular groups of students feel really uncomfortable about attending school and that they felt intimidated, uh, they felt afraid, and that they were being watched or targeted within their school spaces, which is 
absolutely not what school is supposed to feel like for any student. So it's so the, this program has been out of Toronto schools since 2017. Is that accurate? Yeah, we um, the TDSB voted it out in November of 2017. Yeah. So what has happened since then? How are things now? What is different? Things are, things are great. Um, I mean, there's all there's always. Um, schools generally need more funding and need more money to be put towards really constructive supports for students. But generally, what we saw in the 2017 and to 2018 school year, we saw a 15% reduction in suspensions across the entire school board. And we've also heard from a lot of students um, that school is feeling a lot safer now. Without what about offenses? What, ab- what about offenses or issues, uh, incidents? Are they up or down? Do we know? Um, I actually don't have those numbers from the school board. That was, that's something that the school board might have to answer. But we do know that uh, if we can consider suspensions as a reflection of offenses, then they reduced when police officers were removed from schools. Uh, this was initially done to improve relations between the two groups. Why has this not happened? Why, why is, you know, some, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Gita. Um, yeah. Why is it better not to communicate than to communicate? Why is it better not to engage than to engage? Yeah, well, I think that the, I mean, relationships go both ways. And if the police want to have a better relationship with racialized communities, there's a lot that needs to happen first. Um, Racialized communities are not asking at this point to develop relationships with the police because the police have shown us that they're not trustworthy and that they don't serve us that when they're con- that when they're um, concerned about public safety and protecting the public they're not actually concerned about everyone we're not talking about safety for everyone because the police make a lot of people very very unsafe and they're very it's a very dangerous institution for a lot of people so if we're talking about relationship building i think we have to go look at policing as a larger institution and ask well why are the relationships between police and particular communities so fraught and you'll see that there's a history of one way unidirectional violence from this particular institution towards communities so the police have I mean, there, there, there needs to be some sort of con- consent to um, relation, the idea of relationship building, and that's just simply not there. Another thing that we've seen is that the, the um, sort of story or narrative around relationship building has really allowed the police to, um, to sort of obscure the, um, the negative impacts of these kinds of programs in school. So what we found in Toronto was that even though the police were really talking and promoting this program as a relationship building initiative, at the same time, they were collecting information. It was used as a, a tool of surveillance of students. So the police actually admitted that they were collecting information um, about students that they you know, were able to access through these relationships that they created, and then sharing these in, this information with street police officers and with immigrants enforcement um, so that the, these same students could be apprehended outside of school. So I think in a lot of ways, relationship building has been used as a guise to, to further the interests of the police, and we just have no interest in police being in the schools. 
So uh, police in schools not working, um, uh, in your view, what does? I mean, you know, we talk about a lot of this defunding, whatever, whatever, but these seem like gigantic issues that will not ever happen or will take forever, like turning the Titanic. How do we, what's the short-term solution here, Gita? How do we, because obviously this is an important moment. Everybody's focused on that and are focused on this. And even this situation in regarding policing in schools, I'm sure has changed a lot of people's opinion on this issue. So where, what's the short-term solution here? Yeah, I think that's a really great, great question. And um, I think the best thing to do is to turn to the research and the evidence that's available about what actually does create safety in schools. So if we look at the evidence about SRO policing across jurisdictions, there is no clear link between safety in schools and the presence of police officers or, you know, um, a link between sort of like violent incidents and the presence of police officers. So if you look at the evidence as to what actually creates safety in schools, it's things like increasing the number of youth outreach workers and support programs and um, connections between the school and the broader community. Also having conflict resolution programs and other um, disciplinary programs that are not rooted in punitive interventions, but more in restorative and transformative justice. Um, things like peer mentoring and mediation programs. Um, there's just there there are so many amazing examples and recommendations out there for what creates safety in schools. There were two reports actually that were put out in 2008: the Faulkner report and the McMurtry Curling report. And between those two, there's about 200 recommendations for um, things that can do to create safety and none of them involve putting police officers in the schools. So the information is out there. It's just a matter of um, whether we're acting on that information. But there are evidence-based approaches certainly um, that that are much more um, that create much more safety than the police ever could. Uh, Gita Madden has been with us speaking on behalf of Education Not Incarceration, a group of educators, students, parents and researchers and community organizers based in Toronto uh, on the issue of school to prison, the school to prison pipeline. Gita, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about opening up, as you may or may not know, stage two opening up in Ontario, but along the Golden Horseshoe, uh, not so much. It's going to be delayed. Uh, we don't know how long at this point. Uh, and the mayors of Haldeman and Norfolk are not happy that the province didn't allow them to be a part of the phase two reopening. And in response, they protested by having a haircut, socially distant, done in public, uh, and Crystal Chop is with us now. She is the mayor of Norfolk. Crystal, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So what happened there, you rule busters out there? What the heck are you doing? <laughs> well, I think uh, I think Mark was missed uh, with many. It wasn't about getting a haircut, but rather showing solidarity with uh, many of our small businesses here who are past that critical point, uh, who you know are facing bankruptcy and losing their homes. And I can't continue to... Explain the unexplainable to them. Why is it that you can shop in a Walmart with a couple hundred people uh, or, you know, stand uh, stand on a sidewalk uh, buying a hot dog with, you know, tourists from Toronto and, and Mississauga that have descended upon us? Um, but a hairdresser, as an example, uh, one of those allowed to reopen at stage two, can't simply, um, you know, wearing full PP&E with one individual in a store at a time, why they can't operate their business and, and why they're facing, you know, uh, financial disaster. 
I, I totally agree with, you know, splitting the hairs here, no pun intended. I mean, you know, the, the analogy was giving why uh, were massage therapists being able to open it and, and barbers, hairdressers not. And, and, of course, the reaction is one's health care, one is is not. Uh, that being said, over and above what, what your what your uh, point is or, or how what, what uh, side of this issue you fall on, are you not encouraging others to disobey the laws? Well, I think actually, um, you know, it's a classic example that um, our bylaw teams on a municipal level have been given an impossible task of enforcing orders um, and dealing with members of the public on conflicting and and confusing rules that we didn't design. They are being, you know, uh, inconsistently applied across the province on a daily basis. I think if you reached out to our bylaw department and our county solicitor right now, they would tell you there actually wasn't a basis on which to charge me. Uh, what about it? Let's hear what the, uh, what the premier said on this. This was a clip from yesterday. Go ahead. It wasn't longer than two to three weeks ago that we had the two mayors from there. Uh, you know, I remember on TV shouting and screaming, saying they're going to find any cottager that comes up. We didn't have the capacity. They were saying we had one ventilator. We have a small hospital. We don't want anyone up there. And all of a sudden, bingo, they're, they're out there getting a haircut saying they want everyone to come up. I get it. Things change. I, I get it. But, like, you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it, too, one way or another. What about what the premier said, that this was the same communities, these are the same communities that were telling everybody to stay away. Now they're, they're, they're pushing the opposite side of this Well, envelope. I think that the premier's memory is a little bit short on that one, actually, because, um, and, it, and he also doesn't have a clear understanding, then, of the Health Protection and Promotion Act. Mayor Hewitt and I went on many talk shows and, and news stations and said that we actually didn't agree with our medical officer of health issuing that order. But under the Health Protection and Promotion Act, the way the statute was created, it was, it was meant to ensure some independence to local medical officers of health uh, from political interference in the event of the spread of a uh, contagious disease, which is how they have these Section 22 powers, which are broad powers that are granted to them only in the event of a contagious disease. And it's not that I am saying now, or Mayor Hewitt, that we wish for you know the province to um, you know, that, that we're saying everybody should be reopening. Our argument is that it should be consistent across the province. Um, and so... How can it be consistent across the province when the cases aren't consistent across the province? I mean, you know, that's like people saying that they're reversing their decision. They're not reversing anything. They're just moving forward with a progressive plan. I mean, does, how can you... Does a you no know? pee zone in a pool work? Pardon me? Does a no pee zone in a swimming pool work? We're in a pandemic here. Should other mayors be doing the same thing as you've been doing? Well, I think I've seen other mayors that have been out in protests and so on, uh, and, and for other reasons. Protesting about my... protesting about social discourse and George Floyd is one thing. Protesting because you can't get a haircut is another. I'm not protesting because I can't get a haircut. I'm protesting because we have small businesses here that I can't see the justice and the logic, and I can't explain it anymore to our small businesses as to why they can't open and others can. You, can. can you can you accept any more that doctors can explain can't explain to you the reasoning for I've what they're no doing problem. with a pandemic? A pa- I mean it's a, we're in a brand new scenario here. Can we not lead? The premier stated in this press conference that he had consulted with the local medical officers of health. That is false. 
Even the MPP of Niagara has come out and stated that that was false. Niagara was not consulted. We were not consulted. There are nuances to the data. In fact, my community here in Haldeman and Norfolk County, they have done an incredible job of keeping the numbers down. If you were to remove the long-term care outbreak, Anson Place, which is actually a provincial responsibility, not a Haldeman and Norfolk County responsibility. And the Premier, I believe, has already owned that with long-term care facilities and said that they're going to fix it. And that outbreak has passed. Now we have a migrant farm worker outbreak. Of those 164 individuals that tested positive, 26 of them were symptomatic. They are even no longer symptomatic. One person of the 164, unfortunately, is in the hospital. I think if you ask the farmer on a regular season, there are often, you know, people do get sick and they, they do go to the hospital. And this is an awful situation. But but you can't say that, that a farm outbreak is the same as having a massive outbreak in the community. The, the contacts with those workers have been identified. They have been isolated. Uh, you know, the grocery store that they attended, they went in and they tested every single worker in the grocery store out of an abundance of caution. Every single worker came back negative. Any of the community contacts that they've, they've seen, they have all been isolated currently. They are all waiting for their tests to come back. You know, it, it's, it's not at the same level. It's, and again, you have out of the 164 now remaining only two with symptoms. Two were in the hospital. One is coming today, and one I, I send my prayers that is headed. Uh, I believe it's headed to the hospital in London. So, does that justify not being able to, to for one person at a time to go into a hairdresser's to keep them financially stable and going throughout this? Is it better to keep, is it better? Let me ask you this question, Crystal. Is it better to err on the side of caution? What happens if you go terribly wrong erring on the side of caution? You've got to put up with these businesses yelling at you because, of course, they can't make any money. I get that. On the other hand, if you do the other way and you open it up and people die, that's the worst case scenario. Is this not not the best case? Is this not the best case scenario? Like, is it not better to err on the side of the caution just for the sake of a week or so? In fact, our medical officer of health has led the provincial and the federal government every step of the way. We mandated 14-day quarantine upon returning to Canada. That's not my question, Crystal. That's not my question. You're giving us all kinds of other stuff here. We have been operating out of an abundance of caution. We have been criticized time and time and time again for operating out of an abundance of caution. But there is a certain point when it simply doesn't make sense that you can step across the county border and get the same service as you can here. Are you encouraging other mayors to do what you two have done? I, I, if they wanted to get their haircut done as well. I mean, unfortunately, I think it, it missed the mark. What do you as say to the other mayors that are? What do you say? Instead, perhaps. What do you say? Been, what do you say to the other mayors who are facing the exact same problem you are, but are abiding by the rules? I spoke with uh, the mayor of Niagara Falls just the other night, actually, and, and had indicated to him. uh, Well, I know Jim feels the same way. We're going to speak with him in another half an hour. But again, he's not standing out in public and defying orders and thus encouraging others to do the same. I mean, again, I I I think your concerns are absolutely valid. What I'm questioning here is the demonstration stunt you did. Well, if I could go back in time, often there's many things I wish I had done differently. If I thought it was going to be perceived as me wanting a haircut, uh, I, I obviously wouldn't have done that. Do I regret that wholeheartedly because that now is the focus of, of getting a haircut? And I think I'm a pretty, uh, 
non-high-maintenance woman, actually, um, and not getting a haircut is not a big concern of mine. What my concern is is our small businesses here in Haldeman and Norfolk uh, that are calling me up in tears uh, because they say they can't even survive another week, that it's past that critical point for them. So are you saying you wouldn't do this again? Or you wish you hadn't would, have done it? Well, I wish I hadn't done it because I think it's distracting from all of the other comments that have been made uh, the night before Monday evening before this this took place. Comments from our MPP that our own sitting member in Parliament that said that we get what we ask for here in Norfolk, Parliament in Norfolk. This migrant worker program was an exemption. We have Canadians that are, are still stuck across the globe right now and can't come home. And it was a federal exemption to a program that would ensure food production and security for the entire country. But it is the taxpayers of Haldeman and Norfolk that are paying for the translators, that are paying for the public health you know, requirements and overtime. We didn't have the resources for this. We warned the province. We have been actively criticized and our community divided because our medical officer of health took more strict measurements than, than, than measures rather than anywhere else. You know, but but these congregate settings, these are guidelines for those bunkhouses that are provincial guide that are provincial um, regulations. They are they are Scotland is is complying with those regulations. And so, you know, we warned of this. We said it was a concern. Um, people want to know why. I think we're starting to mix up our issues here now, Crystal. I mean, again, I mean, you know, every every leader, every mayor, every municipality is in the exact same position uh, that you guys are. And, and you know, again, I, I just, you know, I understand your concerns. I understand everything that everybody's saying. Uh, but again, the rules are the rules. Anyway, I got to run there. Crystal Chop, mayor of Norfolk. Good luck, Crystal. Thank you, sir. Be well. Uh, let's bring in uh, Jim Diodati, mayor of Niagara Falls, obviously a tourist border city that is feeling the pinch here. Jim, thanks for taking the go. time, Mayor. Greatly appreciated. Yeah. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the Stage 2 reopening and where Niagara Falls is in all of this. Well, you know, we're, I, I'm glad that the province is moving forward, uh, but we're very disappointed Niagara was not included. And I'll tell you, in the last 24 hours, I've had uh, several calls with the Minister of Tourism, the Premier's office, uh, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, all the mayors in the Niagara region, 12 of us plus the chair, and we're all on the same page. Uh, we believe Niagara should have been opened. Our numbers are extremely low. Today we had zero again. Uh, part of the problem, I guess the confusion, we had an anomaly. We had an outbreak at a farm that's been identified, isolated, and contained, and that was our spike in numbers. There's been no spike or spread anywhere else in the population. It's basically been beat down to zero. So we're saying there's no reason for this. I believe they're going to reevaluate it, Scott, and we are more than ready. We've had epidemiologists in visiting our businesses, public health inspections. We're so ready. We're so COVID ready. We've been uh, dealing with our counterparts in Las Vegas at Disney World and making sure that we've done everything you could possibly do to be safe for both our visitors and our staff here. We've got a whole program we're going to be launching as soon as we get the thumbs up from the province, and it's called safetoplay.ca and safetostay.ca, and people can take a lot of comfort knowing when they come here, they're going to be extremely safe, and we've taken every precaution. As a matter of fact, the epidemiologist said we've gone way above and beyond what was required, and we felt that that was important because we want people to feel safe when they come here. 
How concerned are you because Niagara Falls being the tourist mecca that it is, that although your city is safe right now, as soon as tourists come in, because it will be a lot of tourists as soon as the falls are open, that that will change things? How concerned are you because you are a destination, people coming from out of town? Well, we're, we're concerned in that we're going to be very, very proactive. So you won't be able to visit our casinos, any of our attractions, our restaurants, our hotels, without following our strict protocol guidelines. So these are all COVID protocols that will include everything from uh, we've got plexiglass everywhere, uh, antimicrobial sprays applied. We're going to have PPEs available, in some cases mandatory. We've got new technologies. This is some great sanitizing technologies developed right here in Niagara where it's going to use a combination of misting hydrogen peroxide UV lighting that kills absolutely every germ known to man. Uh, We've got all sorts of things, including physical distancing, and the list goes on and on, touchless everything. So you can get into uh, rooms, you can uh, get things to dispense without touching. So we've done everything absolutely possible with a full COVID plan of disinfecting regularly our washroom facilities. And I'll tell you, nobody would be more experienced than our tourist operators at processing big numbers. We typically will, we have 14 million people a year here. We're the number one leisure destination in the entire country. And we know the numbers, we're going to have less people this year. We're not going to have Americans probably for the summer. We'll talk about that. I know a little bit more. And as well, the people that do come, they're going to be reduced because our patios will be at half capacity. Everything will be below half capacity. So we're very confident we're going to be able to continue to control this situation situation and keep our numbers very low um so as it stands right now protocols you're set to open any idea when you may get that nod from the premier's office yeah, as a matter of fact, just before this call, I was just speaking with our Minister of Tourism again, uh, Lisa McLeod, and we have a great relationship with uh, the province, and they understand our situation, and they want everyone back to work as much as we do. And, and I'll tell you, Scott, I've had business owners uh, call me uh, br- broken down in tears where they've already cashed in, their, they're into their lines of credit, they're cashed in their, their savings, their RSPs, they don't know what to do, they don't know where to turn, through no fault of their own. And many of them have been in business for a lot of years. Some of them had just renovated, just expanded, and their, their houses are on the line. They're crushed right now, and they're begging us, please, anything you can do. And I said to the province, either we open up or you better have boatloads of money because these guys are going to be on social assistance for quite some time until they get back on their feet. So if you're asking me to guess and look into my crystal ball – I think we made the, the, the message quite clear. We have a letter going out today uh, to Dr. Williams at the province from our chief medical officer of health, Dr. Herji, uh, saying that his medical professional opinion, we have crushed the curve. Uh, our numbers are very good, as good as anywhere else in the province. We should not be included in the GTA uh, numbers and that we should be allowed. And I would hope that Monday uh, there will be an announcement that the following Friday that Niagara Falls will be open for business. And that would be my hope and that would be my expectation based on all the information this is not political this is medical science and we think there was a little blip in information maybe someone dropped the ball along the line i'm not sure who and i really don't care let's just get things done let's get open let's help our businesses survive because these are the people who live in our communities and they need us to support them now more than ever uh, again, your thoughts on the U.S. border closure. Obviously, it was initially to June 21st or this latest review. Now it's been bumped back to July. Your thoughts? 
Well, I'm very supportive of keeping the border closed right now, Scott. And and as we're all aware, New York has been the epicenter for COVID-19. Their numbers were extremely high at one point. I know they were 10 times the numbers of Ontario. And it's tough being a border community when you've got essential uh, staff crossing the border that work in the hospitals on both sides of the border. And we have that here in Niagara Falls, too. We've got four border crossings. And typically, it'd be 10 million cars and 2 million trucks every year crossing. And and we're concerned about that border. Typically in Niagara Falls, 25% of our guests come from the U.S. Um, We know that our numbers are going to be reduced this season anyway, and we believe we'll make up for the lost traffic with Ontario residents staying in Ontario. The rubber tire market is going to stay here. There'll be a lot more staycations. Gas is cheap. We believe a lot more people are going to make their destination right here in Ontario, certainly in Canada. So we're not too worried. I was on a Zoom call last week, a binational call with mayors from the U.S. and Canada along the border, and we all feel the same way. A lot of them here in in upstate New York are worried about Toronto because they see the Toronto numbers, and they're feeling the same way. They're saying, listen, for now, let's make sure we get things cleaned up in our own backyards before we go opening up our front doors. And we all feel the same way. When, When a relative is sick, they should stay home until they're better. And when we're sick, we shouldn't visit our relatives until we're better. And we see them as cousins, and we want to see them, but we want to make sure we're both healthy before we do that. And we're in no rush. We like this very slow, methodical approach, more of a dimmer switch than anything uh, to the border. We're definitely happy with the approach that we've been taking. Jim Diodati's been with us, Mayor of Niagara Falls, waiting for the green light to uh, open the doors. Jim, thanks for the time. Uh, Good luck moving forward and be well. My pleasure. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.